Hey, thanks for tuning in to episode 17 of the Ross Trevina Project. Today's guest is a journalist and author whose book, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America, is available to purchase on Amazon. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Linda Torado. How did a well-renowned author end up living in a shared house with Liam Amy's? I was in London just teaching for a term. And my plan had been to kind of Airbnb a space uh, in a different zone because the idea of zones fascinated me. Like I was very provincial. I'd never really been outside the mountains. And then I suddenly was in D.C. and New York and L.A. And then the next thing you know, I'm overseas, which doesn't sound very exotic to you because it's, you know, where you're from. But to me, like the idea of zones was fucking mind blowing. So I thought, well, I'll Airbnb a different place for a week at a time and I'll see, you know, what class looks like in a society that's much more frank about class than America is, because that's what I was writing about is being, you know, working class or lower class in America. But we don't admit that that even exists. So I was just fascinated. And then like I Liam had a bed on Airbnb that was just a picture of a dirty ass mattress (laughs) with like some fairy lights like just a strand of Christmas lights and a really dirty mattress and I went well I have to see what the fuck this is about and it was 10 quid a night oh wow I had been staying in Kensington I think for 190 a night and I went up to Tottenham Hill and he went I'll meet you off the tube and I all right and then this young man who hadn't brushed his hair in clearly months with a dog that just would terrify anybody I'm came and got me and said, all right, well, let's go. And then we walked through an industrial park and we got to a place that wasn't fit for human habitation. And I thought, well, I absolutely have to live here. (laughs) And it it turned out to be one of the better experiences of my life. I didn't mean to stay there for so long, but it became very clear that they were about to be evicted. And I thought to myself, well, I'd like to see what a UK eviction is because people in the UK are far more polite I don't think it's kinder, but it's far more understanding. Like in the way that like our procedural dramas, like if cops want to get a DNA sample in an American cop drama, they break, you know, 80 laws on their way to get there or they'll like beat you up and get your DNA that way because they got it off their own knuckles or whatever. Uh. And in the UK, it's very like, oh, we will need a DNA sample. It's completely voluntary. Like, (laughs) It's very upfront of like, no, we're fucking you up here. And also you don't have a choice. And eviction is that same way where in the United States, the eviction process is very quick, but you get all the notice in the world. Like you have to have a 72 hour notice, a 48 hour notice, a 24 hour notice. Like they let you know this is when it's happening. And when we got evicted from that squat, it was legitimately like eight of us or nine of us were living there at the time. And these cops knocked on the door and this very polite man said, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to disturb. But you do have about an hour. Oh, okay. Well, we are going to need you all to be gone and to take all your things with you. Like, all right, cool. 
So like I'm on the phone frantically calling all my housemates who are at university or they're at their jobs and like I'm negotiating with this fucking sheriff and it's my good luck because it was part of a reality TV show. Apparently you guys have a TV show over there that's just people being evicted. Oh, was it on that, was it? No, their crew wasn't there that day. No? Oh, okay. Are you talking about slum landlords and... I can't remember the rest of the title. It's something like that. Yeah, something like that. And so, like, I'm sitting there, like, newishly famous, and I just want to watch an eviction happen and smoke some weed, if I'm honest. (laughs) And, like, I can't afford the negative publicity of being thrown out on my ass by a sheriff. Um, But, of course, the people who came to evict this warehouse that was not legal were the reality TV show. And so, like, I'm sitting there trying to call my housemates, be like, yo, you got to come get your shit. The cops are here. And there's been no warning that they were going to show up. It was out of the clear damn blue sky at nine o'clock on like a Tuesday or something. Like, no notice posted at the door. And they're like, well, you did have a year and a half's notice. And I'm like, I've only lived here for like two months. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) And in the meantime, I'm also on the phone to my agent. And like my editors being like, I think I might have just gotten evicted live on British TV. And I don't know like what PR we have to do about the situation, but I'm just giving you a heads up. And then it it turns out they didn't have the cameras that day. I will forever remember because, you know, this was a house full of a bunch of uni students and various layabouts from various parts of the globe. I think there were seven countries represented to represent all of the hemispheres like we had an australian we had a cypriot we had an american we had like some chick from denmark everywhere it was absolute collection of rogues and we had uh you know late night raves and things like that in this place and so like they came in and like me as an american i'm like oh fuck hide everything that's illegal and the cop just tells me like we don't actually care (laughs) take the drugs with you (laughs) is what we care about we just need you to get all your shit and get out we're gonna pile all your stuff outside the house we have a crew they're here to put all your stuff out for you and uh we just don't care if you smoke a little weed which is not at all like the experience of getting evicted in the united states oh wow (laughs) there's a law or whatever it's called squatters rights in the uk what's the american equivalent to that um we also have squatters rights in fact there's it's become very political recently there's been a woman just elected to the oakland city council in california who was part of moms for housing and they famously were squatting in kind of abandoned mansions because they were homeless and the banks owned these properties but the rental market was insane and so they went and famously squatted there the situation that Liam and I were in was some dude had rented a spot from this guy and had illegally subdivided it meant to be a garage really oh and just built a bunch of rooms into it and like four bathrooms and a weird kitchen so we just all live there in the U.S. it depends by municipality or by jurisdiction or by state largely if you've been living in a place for like i think on average i want to say a year then you have some claim to the property oh really yeah but it has to be i think in most places it has to be seven years before you can legally claim ownership in any way i absolutely could be lying about that (laughs) yeah i don't know what the how it works here you even just have to put something on the door that says 
we're doing squatters rights or whatever. But I don't know what the putting on the door has to do with anything, really. All I know is I walked past a Tesco Express and the most like weird new condos. And then I walked past three tire fires and I got to the warehouse that I lived in with a bunch of weird musician kids. <laughs> and I waited until we got evicted. And then we did get evicted. And that was hilarious how long were you in england for in total um i want to say nine months no six i was there for six months sorry i was in australia for nine months it's been a little bit weird things get hazy uh nice so where else uh, did your travels take you largely to london and then various parts of australia i meant to be in australia for three weeks and then i wound up running a political campaign oh okay yeah i didn't mean to do that i don't mean to do most of the things that i do like <laughs> I, I kind of live life on whims. And so if I happen to be overseas and see something interesting, I'm like, well, fuck, I live here now. Do you just end up in situations? Yeah, well, so I had been to Australia. I was on the show called Q&A. It's literally called Q&A. It's their kind of big political chat show. And there's a host and they have various guests and it's, uh, you know, politicians and authors and people visiting, you know, musicians and shit. And literally anyone in Australia, because it's a very small country, despite its big landmass. And so there's this very like neighborly feel to the place. And just anybody can go and ask a question on Q&A. And I'd been on the show a couple of times and there was this dude called Duncan Storer who is disabled and he has been an addict and he was a ward of the state and he was the victim of child sexual abuse while he was a ward of the state. Like this dude had a fucked up life. And so he went on to Q&A and he asked the deputy secretary of the treasury why Australia could afford to pay, uh, you know, X amount of billions of dollars to some corporation, but they were advising regular Australians to be, you know, more judicious about their toast to save money. He just went like, I'm sorry, I just don't understand why I can't take my daughter to the movies. And this is your attitude. And he caught out the deputy treasury secretary. She didn't have an answer for it. And the next thing you know, the Murdoch press just absolutely goes fuck to town. Like they absolutely went to murder this dude. And I sort of skip my visa and refuse to leave the country <laughs> i was like well i'm because i also had said it sucked to be poor and had been in the middle of a firestorm and so i kind of knew what this dude was going through and so i absolutely refused to leave the country until i knew that duncan Storer was okay and now we're great mates but yeah i happened to be in australia i was supposed to be there for three weeks i was there for nine months and in the meantime i wound up working on a election because <laughs> why would i not oh you should have a movie about your life um <laughs> well, how did that all resolve itself well duncan it turns out is a really strong poverty advocate and it's weird because i think every country is kind of in the past maybe five possibly ten years and i might be being ungrateful to my elders and those that preceded me here but I think that in the last five or 10 years, just about every country has taken somebody who said it sucks to be poor and put them through the media machine and ground them up and spat them back out on. So you have, for example, Jack Monroe in England. You have my friend Darren McGarvey up in Scotland. You've got Duncan Storer in Australia. You've got me in America. And all of us have the same kind of experience of 
you know, having said it sucks to be poor. And then everybody went, what the fuck are you talking about? You have so many opportunities. Why didn't you just pull yourself up by your fucking bootstraps? Like, and it gets really bad. And I think that it's a weird new media thing that we all have that kind of commonality. But I doubt that there's a country at this point that doesn't have that singular persona where you can be like, oh, you remember poverty chick. You remember poverty dude. Like, yeah, everybody does kind of vaguely remember it. It's a very strange place to be. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think I've actually heard of any of those people. Maybe Jack Monroe. I can't work out where I've heard the name, though. Jack Monroe is the one that sued Katie Hopkins for uh, libel and slander and won. Oh, really? They're the reason Katie Hopkins had to sell her house. What did she say about them? She said they were unpatriotic or something of that nature. They mixed Jack and Lori Penny up somehow. Katie Hopkins had made a tweet about how Jack had, you know, spit on the graves or, or desecrated a war memorial or something like that, which is very not like Jack. And Jack sued for libel and won. And Katie Hopkins doesn't have a house now because she can't manage her shit. Um, Jack does low-income food recipes, bootstrap cook. I feel like Jack Monroe is a fairly like commonplace name no offense jack i love you well but that's that's a name that you might well know see the trouble is i'm gonna promo this so jack might listen oh because we are a tiny little club hey jack what's up man (laughs) what was uh the first book you remember reading as a child an anthology of blackfoot legends what's that (laughs) yeah the first book i remember reading it had a yellow cover yeah There's a lot of native tribes in America, and I remember the coyote legends. And coyote is kind of like Loki, but with a way bigger dick. Like, a lot of coyote stories are very dick-focused. And they're all, like, about the downfall of mischievousness. And so there's, like, this one where a coyote just makes his dick 100 yards long so that he can go, like, molest a lady taking a bath in the pool. Well, this is a child's book. It wasn't really a child's <laughs> book. I just read it. <laughs> uh, That's like the first thing I remember. And like Coyote getting his dick run over by a carriage because he had to stretch it across the road so he could go molest a female. Oh like that is kind of a formative memory for me. Stretch dicks wrong. That's hilarious. Uh, because I asked my dad, can you actually do that? <laughs> is that when he realized what you were reading? <laughs> He was the one that bought me the book, but I don't think that he'd like really looked it over. I think he thought like this is a good cultural experience. That's hilarious. And like it's just a bunch of stories, right? Because it was. There were stories about trees and there were stories about mountain gods and you know, in the same way that you might buy like an anthology of like Norse mythology or you might buy, you know, Greek mythology. He bought me Blackfoot theology, you know, just a collection of these native myths. And I don't think he understood how much, like, penis stretching was involved. <laughs> That's so funny. Maybe I've got to read that. Parenting is fucking wild. <laughs> I've got two kids of my own now, so I'm just like, yeah, I can totally see how at some point my kid's going to be on a podcast. Be like, yeah, first thing I remember is stretchy dicks. <laughs> the tales of stretchy dicks. When you were a child, did you always want to be an author or was there another career you had in mind? Oh, God, no, I didn't even know. I had no idea I was even good at writing. I accidentally became a writer. No, when I was a kid, I wanted to be on the Supreme Court or potentially 
come up with a cancer treatment for horses, which is like a really hyper specific life goal, but I had it for a while. There was a solid two years where I was like, I'm going to solve horse cancer. I, I have no idea where I got it from, but like, I remember that being like really at one point, I wanted to build a better treehouse. I didn't grow up with a, a strong sense of self. I just sort of like, no, that sounds cool. I think I'll do that. Like, I read far too many books. That's the trouble. I was never, I was never a popular kid. I skipped two grades, so I was always years below my classroom cohorts, and I never really hung out with many kids. And I lived like kind of this very private life in my own brain. And my brain is a weird fucking place. <laughs> you went up two grades. You were just overperforming at school? Yeah, I skipped kindergarten and I skipped third grade. Oh, okay. And they would have had me skip more, except for they were worried about my sociability. And they were worried about my social skills, which they shouldn't have been. Because once you've skipped a kid two grades, they're already not going to have friends. Go ahead and like fuck you at that point. No 10-year-old wants to hang out with an 8-year-old. Oh. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So I, I got kind of trapped in the middle of, well, I'm still bored at school. And also everybody here thinks I'm a child because I literally am. All right, cool. So, I mean, high school is fun. My first homecoming was, dude, actually, and homecoming's a big deal. I don't know if you must have formal dances and things. I don't know the cultural reference. Oh, yeah. You have school dances and prom, I think it would be called, maybe. Is the homecoming, like, that equivalent? Homecoming is, like, fall prom. Prom is spring. Homecoming is fall. And it's largely after the big football game. <laughs> the biggest football game of the year is homecoming. And then you have homecoming dance after, like, that weekend. And my first homecoming... One of my best mates said, hey, I'd like to see you do the dance. And like my little, you know, 13 year old heart went pitter pat. He went, because I need to practice before I take this girl to her actual homecoming next week. So my first homecoming, I was a practice date. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. So uh, what's so big about the big game? Why is that the biggest game of the season? I don't fucking know. Do I sound like a sports person? Maybe you just know because it was nearby, but you're not sure why it's the biggest game. Well, at some point in the fall, every school says, hey, we're having a home game. This is our homecoming weekend. And alumni come in and everybody pretends it's a very large deal, but it's actually just the same goddamn game of football they played last weekend and they're going to play the next weekend. They've just arbitrarily decided that this is the important one because it's a home game oh, okay. and it's homecoming. I honestly could not explain it to you any better. I am sure that there is a load of arcane, you know, mythology and tradition behind it. I just never gave a fuck about football or cheerleading. And those are like the two groups of people who might know like what they were. I don't know. I was in the band, so. Seems like it's artificially special just due to tradition, maybe. Yeah, no, it's a tradition that there's a homecoming game, but I couldn't tell you why one game was homecoming versus a different weekend. Like, it's not the same weekend every year. It's just at some point, late October, November, oh, this is homecoming. All right, fine. And then they announce it as homecoming, and then everybody behaves as though it's homecoming, and that makes it homecoming. It's a very self-fulfilling thing. That's super interesting. What other creative ventures did you have in your youth? Uh, yeah, no, music uh, was definitely it. I play uh, 37 instruments. 
fucking so <laughs> which ones everything that isn't strings oh really it's all the same skill really because it's like to play brass or wood wings you have to have what's called embouchure and it's how you hold your mouth because you have to vibrate the reeds or you have to blow into the horn right and every single instrument has its own reeds or its own mouthpiece but it's all the same fucking skill oh okay and it's largely the same amount of keys. And so if you've learned to play the clarinet, you can learn to play the oboe. If you've learned to play the trumpet, you can learn to play the French horn. It's all generally the same thing. And so I play percussion and brass and woodwinds. Oh, nice. Was that in like a school band or was that something outside of academics? No, it was because my mom really wanted me to take over the world. With jazz music? Yeah. With jazz music. I was adopted in family by my grandparents. And they labeled me gifted very early. And my parents were very determined that I would uphold that label. And so I was the kid that was, you know, eight years old. And I was in therapy two hours and in music instruction three hours and religious instruction two hours. And then also school. And then also I was pushed very hard, which I, you know, in retrospect, I'm lucky for. But at the time, I kind of hated but the upshot is I play all the instruments and I read all the books and I don't sports because I think a lot of parents push their kids to sports. And like, you know, those kids who play, you know, both kinds of football and also squash and also they do lacrosse and also, you know, like they swim and all that, like kind of that, but for like the humanities, oh, right. <laughs> like, my parents were sports parents, but for the humanities. <laughs> That's funny. Most kids, I don't think, were classically trained opera singers by the time they were 15. Oh, wow. Have you got um, the recordings of your early music? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. And you'll never hear them. Oh, really? You're not going to put a, like, a jazz album out at some point? No, God, no. Um, Surprise everyone. <laughs> the, the thing is, they taught me all the skills before they taught me about the liquor and the heroin. Oh. And I don't currently, never actually have done heroin. But if we're talking about jazz, like... How are you going to teach a kid to sing jazz? Like, what pain does an eight-year-old have that's, like, really going to get to the grit of it? Being a practice date. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, Tom Waits is an eight-year-old just singing with, like, a clean, pure voice about Chicago. Like, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Uh, okay. But you don't feel like you have enough pain now to do it? Well, yeah, but now I don't sing anymore. Oh. We took everything in my life and like, put it on the opposite track, right? Like, we did all the training and all of the performance, and then came the pain. And now I'm like, well, fuck me. See, that's why I went into writing. Oh, okay. So do you not do any music now? Um, No, I really haven't. Not in decades now. Oh, okay. Which is weird to say. Wow, I'm old. Fuck me. Yeah, no, literal decades. All right occasionally people get me drunk enough to karaoke and they're like holy shit you can sing and i'm like yeah i know i won awards <laughs> is it making more sense how i wound up living in a share house with liam now yeah now that we've chatted for this long <laughs> i'm exactly the kind of weird person that shows up in a share house with liam <laughs> just to see what british evictions are like oh god where did your writing journey begin well this bitch was wrong on the internet <laughs> it's literally it like look in the long long ago of 2013 
you know, back when Twitter was brand new, you know what I mean? Like all this technology and the internet have replicated and innovated and grown so exponentially every year that it's kind of hard to think back almost a decade ago to how limited it was at that time. But we all lived on message boards then. Like this was just after the era of live journal. What year was this? Do you remember? 2013. 2013. Okay. This was October 2013. And there was a website called Gawker, which is now defunct because Hulk Hogan has a tiny penis. And I swear to God, that is not a misrepresentation. You can look it up. <laughs> is that what? Did they say that and he sued them or something? Okay. So Hulk Hogan sued Gawker Media because they had released a sex tape of him fucking his best friend's wife. And his best friend was called Bubba the Love Sponge. I've heard of Bubba the Love Sponge. None of this is made up. None of this. And so Bubba the Love Sponge told Hulk Hogan that he could fuck his wife. But then there was a video and Gawker got a hold of the video because Gawker was salacious as fuck. It was kind of like Gawker was kind of a higher rent daily mail. <laughs> like they were there for all the salacious bullshit, but occasionally they broke real stories and like their journalists were actually legitimately good. It's just that everybody wants to see Hulk Hogan fucking Bubba Lusfunge's wife. Like, why would that not be newsworthy? So they published it. And so Hulk Hogan sues them for like millions and millions of dollars and wins. And this is a true thing as well. I am not making any of this up. The guy who is Hulk Hogan, his real name is Terry Balea, is sitting there in open fucking court testifying about his dick size because Terry Balea has a small penis, but Hulk Hogan has a huge dick. Oh. That was the copyright claim. <laughs> was that it was infringing on Hulk Hogan's brand to show Terry Balea's penis. <laughs> because Terry Balea has a small dick, but Hulk Hogan has a huge dick. So he would have been less bothered if they used his real name. No, no, not at all. It's that you can't show Terry Balea's dick because he's Hulk Hogan. Like, oh. the, the amount of surreality. There's an entire documentary series about this. Like, endless podcasts. The court transcripts alone. But anyway, so when I first started writing, <laughs> well, what was the question? Oh, where you wrote your thing? Yeah, it was on this website that got shut down because Hulk Hogan's dick isn't as big as he pretended it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> you do get used to living the kind of life that, like, these stories do interconnect, and they're all wild. There was a, and still is actually, a website called Jezebel which was specifically a feminist website. But Gawker Media had an umbrella of six or seven different sites. They had Kotaku, they had Deadspin, um, and it was a game site, it was a sports site, it was a site for feminism, it was a site for media critique, like, and they had all these different like little brands. And each of these places had their own little kind of message boards on the backside. And a woman said, on this message board that I was an active participant in, uh, she showed up one day. She said, look, I'm, you know, as good of a liberal as the next person, but I've just been to the store and I saw somebody. And again, this is 2013. So this is a different context. I've just seen somebody with an iPhone who is using 
food stamps and I'm not supposed to judge, but can somebody remind me why I shouldn't as a taxpayer be very angry about this? And I had a fucking answer. Like that was it. Just no, I'm sorry. Do you like this was two years service contract. You get a free phone, right? Like this was those years back in 2013. You know, now it's if you have an iPhone six, you're poor. But back then having an iPhone at all, like that was the height of goddamn luxury. You should at least have a fucking sidekick. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're on razor phones. So was this the article you wrote called Why I Make Bad Decisions? Yeah, no. Well, see, that's the misconception. That wasn't an article. That was literally me on a message board being loud. No, basically, and I published it in the book. Like, the thing that I said was, look, you don't get to judge. You, from the outside, in your 20 minutes of shopping in your store and your 60 seconds of observing the shopper before you, do not get to decide what the fuck their life is or how it has happened or how they happened into one nice goddamn thing. I'm so sorry that she wasn't wearing her hair shirt properly for you. Yeah, she had a nice thing and she used it in front of you and you felt angry because you think that if somebody's poor, they shouldn't have anything that's ever nice because five cents of your tax bill went to feed them. Who the fuck are you? And why are you speaking? I have questions. (laughs) So that's how it started. I literally, a woman was very loudly wrong on the internet and actually asked for somebody to come explain it to her. And I went and explained it to her. And then everybody was like, oh my God, what a well-considered essay. Dude, the night I wrote that, I was coming off my second shift. I was supposed to have gotten off at nine o'clock, but the closing cook called off. So I had to stay until 2 a.m. And then I still had to drive an hour home over the fucking mountains in the middle of damn winter during deer season. So I'm jacked up on as much caffeine as I can possibly fucking get. I get home. I still got to be to work at six o'clock in the morning to open the next restaurant because I had two different jobs. And so I immediately start drinking trying to get myself to calm down enough off the caffeine that I could get like two hours of sleep before I had to be to work again. And this bitch wants to know, oh, I had an answer. And then everybody thought, oh my God, you've been writing your whole life. Like, no, I am an internet commenter. (laughs) (laughs) How much sleep did you end up getting after writing that? I don't know if I've slept since, let me tell you. (laughs) It's still railing. Okay, uh, so did you get a book deal off the back of that then? Within a week and a half. Oh, blimey. Yeah, no, this lady called me and I thought she was like, I started getting trolled. And again, this is, you know, 2013. We throw around the term viral now. But, you know, seven years ago, given how new internet culture really is, people didn't really understand what it meant. And so, you know, I had a dude show up to my house with a gun trying to prove that I was a rich girl. I had a writer who went off internet rumors and actually published an article about how I went to prep school with Mitt Romney's kids. I had, like, it got weird. It got really weird. 
That was going to be one of my questions, so I'll ask it now. What's the wrongest thing you've read about yourself that someone else has written? Um, yeah, no, it, it's still that one article. Yeah. There's a writer called Adam Weinstein, and he wrote for Gawker at the time, and he wrote an article that said that viral poverty chick isn't lying, but I wouldn't give her any money. And his entire thing is based off this one absolutely blasphemous article. <laughs> it's beyond, like, the standards for slander and libel in the U.S. are far laxer than in the U.K. And so, like, you have to prove actual malice here. It's not just that it's wrong and knowably wrong. You also have to prove malice. And so it's very hard to prosecute anybody for libel in the U.S., but this woman just absolutely wrote that I was a scion of the wealthy, which was fucking hilarious because I was three months behind at my rent at the time. And it was extra bad. Um, and people believed it. It was, uh, you know, viral culture has been a strange thing since the beginning. Okay, so have you always had your detractors as well as your the people who have enjoyed your work? Is that just a byproduct of being as... Famous? Is famous the right word? Like, if you just, like, out there? Well, I think I'm smallishly famous. Yeah, I'd say so. I got recognized in an airport in Fiji, <laughs> which is the sense that, like, I think you have to admit to a certain amount of fame once you've been like, A, I've been to an airport in Fiji, <laughs> and B, I was recognized in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. It's actually far more mundane than that. Like, I just happen to be sharing a flight, and I'd happen to be on Australian TV, and Fiji was the break between Sydney and LA. And so this woman on my flight had literally seen me on TV the night before. But I feel like once you've been like, I have A, been in a bathroom in Fiji, and B, illicitly smoked in it. Because I didn't have a tourist visa for Fiji, so I couldn't leave the airport, but fuck you. <laughs> like, listen, I don't mean to be the most white lady of all white ladies but the airport was under construction while i was in it so like i went to the bathroom and it didn't have a ceiling <laughs> and i thought to myself fuck you i have a four-hour layover nobody is gonna give a shit if i smoke in the ceilingless bathroom oh i see okay i thought you meant you got rained on on the toilet or something no no i just wanted to have a goddamn cigarette i'm a heavy smoker <laughs> and it was a weird couple of days. And so I get to Fiji and I'm just like, I, you know what? No, I'm having a cigarette. And so I'm having a cigarette in this toilet stall in Fiji, which is the most fucking famous person shit you could ever say in your life. Right? Like, once you have this story to tell, you have to admit that you're, like, not living a normal life. <laughs> and also, when you hear the story, you're just like, yeah, no, I could totally see how that would happen. That's some, like normal person plucked up and put into weird shit reacting like a normal person but like oh so i'm inside it so i don't necessarily know how good my view is but how common is your version of fame i've only been to fiji once and it was accidental now i was going to ask but the situations you get yourself in how common is that for famous people okay well i've always been the sort to get myself into situations you do remember you opened this podcast going how the fuck did you wind up living with liam <laughs> yeah so i'm questioning whether it's actually because you're famous or whether it's just a personality trait you have no this is just my life it, well no it escalated because it used to be hey linda 
how exactly did you come to know the armed white nationalists? Well, okay, so I embedded when they took over the wildlife reservation and it turns out one of them lived in my hometown. So I actually straight walked on that story with, I will have my dad call your dad. Like, I'm going to report here. You don't have an option. I'll have my dad call your dad, which is very common if you're from a small place, right? Like just work the network. That's fine. And the more famous you get, the further this escalates. And so now we're into like roofless bathrooms in Fiji where I'm just trying to have a cigarette. And the next thing you know, actually, while I was in Fiji, I wound up harvesting a dude's lettuce. <laughs> that an innuendo? No. <laughs> the plane was late. I was eight hours. And so I walk outside and I've never, ever, like, I've been to London. I've been to Australia. I've been a few cities in the U.S., but I'm still incredibly provincial and I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. I'm feeling very bold. So I walk outside of the airport and this guy just like in my van. I'm like, fuck yeah, I'll do that. Now I have $10 American and $20 Australian on me at the time. Well, you just got in a random guy's van. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed fine at the time. He was an off-licensed driver. It's fine. Like, he's clearly there hustling tourists, right? I've got $20 in one currency and $10 in another. It's the amount of money I have on me. I'm carrying a single suitcase. Fuck you. Like, it's fine. We'll be good. And he takes me to this chicken shop, which is just not even close to any place. It's just as far as my mom will get me. And he leaves me enough money to buy dinner at the chicken shop. So I go in there and I'm drinking a Pepsi, which I'm mad about because I drink Coke, not Pepsi. The chicken is weird. (laughs) And I'm trying to be international and not complain about the fact that, like, you've undercooked this chicken. I, I don't give a fuck what nation I'm in. I know an undercooked chicken when I see it. I'm a cook. Like, I can't eat this. And so eating these chips and drinking this Pepsi and I go outside to have a cigarette and these two guys roll up and they start talking to me and like their legs are absolutely just covered in cuts. Like they're bleeding openly and fucking scarred as hell. And so like, what the shit happened to your legs? Well, it turns out they're farmers. All right, cool. Well, I also come from farm country. So then we start talking about various crops that might grow on Fiji versus what grows where I'm from. And then they say, do you want to see our farm? And me being me, I'm like, fuck yes, I want to see your farm. And so they take me out to their farm. And the next thing you know, they've got me harvesting an entire row of lettuce with a goddamn machete because I want to learn the machete technique. For harvesting lettuce because this is fascinating to me and these dudes are laughing their balls off and then one of them tells me he said well it became very clear that you weren't one of the tourists we could fuck so we thought maybe we could make you work <laughs> uh, so how long were you there for eight hours oh you did a full day <laughs> no i like i went I smoked illicitly in the airport. I broke free of customs. I went to a shitty chicken shop. I harvested lettuce with a machete and I was back on my plane. That sounds like quite the day. <laughs> I feel like that's the thing you can't like, 
you do have to admit that you're kind of famous once that's your day. And also in there, two women in the bathroom went, oh, is your name Linda? Yeah. Oh, you're the American. We saw you on TV last night. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the only part that has anything to do with fame is the fact that they noticed you the rest of it. <laughs> Not if a famous person goes and fucking gets in a random person's van. I have a just unfortunate tendency to want to know what happens next. Oh, that's, yeah. It's good and bad. It's what makes me a good journalist. It's also probably why I've lost my left eye. Like, there's a certain amount of risk involved with just needing to know what happens next. Oh, shit. I'm going to have to let you go pretty soon, but maybe we should talk about your book quick and uh, maybe get onto your eye. You've got a book called Hand to Mouth. What is your main criticism of the bootstraps mentality? Well, it's 288 pages of It Sucks to be Poor. And here's the thing about bootstraps. If you think about the mechanism of bootstraps, pulling yourself up by your own essentially is an order to levitate. So you think it's a shitty metaphor? No, it's the worst fucking metaphor, which is the only thing that they can come up with for us. Hey, and it's also perfect in a way. Hey, you know what we're going to need you to do? Just uh, quietly levitate without making too much noise. That'd be great. And then you can join us on our higher planes once you've figured out how to defy fucking physics. There is no such thing as bootstraps. Bootstraps were meant to hold up the soles of your shoes. The amount of people who seriously have never considered how much damage is done to your soul and your psyche and your body. Well, I haven't had to have a wage job. Since I said it sucked to be poor, which is ironic on the face of it, but also this is what I do for a living now. <laughs> and I go and weirdly I risk my body in new ways. And a lot of people would say like, oh, now you're comfortable and now you're privileged. Like, no, I am still doing dirty ass work that you won't do. Because there's a certain kind of person who knows how to do dirty work. And it's not the person that, with much love to all of my educated friends, and with much love to all of my friends who, you know, haven't had to struggle, it's a different worldview. Like, that you can be a journalist and be covering the breakdown of American society as though it's new. You can be doing all sorts of things, but you're not going to go put your physical body out there. I think that there's a lot of people don't quite understand that working class doesn't necessarily mean low skill. I think there's a lot of people, and I think that those people tend to have been highly educated, who think of working class as a physical trade. And they don't realize it means you're working. I'm curious as to the difference between the working class in America versus England, because it seems to be slightly almost mild subcultures within the the culture of England, if you're whether you're working class or middle class. So like his interesting thing is often people from working class backgrounds will go into get some kind of trade training after they leave school and will end up making a lot more money than the middle class people who went to uni in some cases 
because the people who went to uni often didn't choose a very good degree to do so it's almost less of a financial thing here and more of like a subculture how was it defined in america um it's a beautiful question and i i think it's increasingly getting blurred because class was very strict in the uk like a thing i say to there's three specific friends i have who are incredibly middle-class Essex blokes in the same way that I heard you and I said, I know your accent. And I say that from an American perspective, but you're from the same town as Liam. Yeah. yeah. I know your accent. <laughs> yeah. You sound similar then. Um, in, in the inflection of your I and O vowels. Ah, interesting. Um, but Liam can tell you, I've identified three people from your county. Oh, I know a guy that sounds like you. I have an ear for it. Yeah but I still can tell you what it means. But I do know all the middle-class folks I know from Essex sound exactly the same. Yeah. And I know that all of the men I've ever seen wear red trousers. Red trousers? Sound exactly the same. How do people with red trousers sound? Oh, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't. My mouth won't wrap around the vowels right. I'm not good with mimicry. Like I don't do impressions well but I can hear a lot of things. Class in America is so much more fungible. Class in the UK and here, like the reason I've had a love affair with the UK is that everybody just like sort of openly admits about class. Like, oh, you're from there. Yeah, you're from here. Okay, good, good, good. We don't do that here. In America, we expect that everybody could, if they wanted to, be part of the upper crust and we have all these euphemisms for class but like the fact remains i have one precisely and i looked this up one day for an article because it was a joke i was gonna make i have won precisely 89 more awards for my work than ivanka trump has ever won but I can't show up to a party in the Hamptons. We don't talk about it. We talk about meritocracy. In the UK, you speak about class and class is like this norm defining thing. We're like, oh, you're from here, you're from there, you're from wherever. And then everybody understands what expectations you're coming from. And some of them are fair and some of them are not. But a girl from the mountains in rural Utah, I ain't supposed to be shit to anybody. The only reason Americans take me seriously is that the Brits took me seriously. The Scots took me seriously. It's exotic. Anything with a UK inflection, and I do mean any part of the UK, because Americans can't tell the difference. It just put an accent on it. Oh, she's very serious. All right, well, now I win more credibility in the US. Like, I could have had Liam say I was very serious and I would have sold 50 more books because <laughs> he got the accent oh I see oh okay I thought just because he's limb <laughs> and the same goes with the Australians and the Kiwis like I can tell the difference between say Western Australia and Melbourne and Sydney but that's only because I lived there and because I paid attention to the politics and I can tell the difference between an Australian and somebody from New Zealand. But again, it's only because I'm there. Most of America, like, oh, is there an accent? Fuck yes. It's a foreign accent? Perfect. But not any foreign accent. It has to be slightly British. Interesting. Okay. 
we best talk about this as you've teased it a few times. What happened? Let's go to the day that you had the encounter with the police. How did that day start? Well, that's very polite of you. Uh... <laughs> and also, I'm interested in instinctively, did you have a feeling that anything was going to happen in the morning or was it just another day? Um, No, I really didn't. So I've been covering civil unrest and police brutality. I embedded in Ferguson in 2014. I've been to multiple cities that have had clashes and uprisings. I embedded uh, with the Bundys, and I do think I might be the only American journalist who's embedded with both Black Lives Matter and the far right. I think I'm the only journalist that covered Ferguson and Malheur. And so the pandemic started, and we were all distancing and we were all doing our things. I was planning a garden. And when George Floyd was killed, I got in touch with all of my friends in the industry who were up in Chicago, which is far closer than I live. And I said, who's going to go cover this? It's the thing that we do professionally. Like everybody doesn't have to show up to everything, but we do form these loose associations of like making sure the news gets covered without any one of us having to kind of go out of our way. Oh, that's interesting. Is this people who all, all work for the same newspapers or is it just a general group of journalists? Oh, no, we're all freelancers. America's oh, okay. fired all of its media people. <laughs> um, the newsrooms have absolutely downsized all of us freelance. And that's why we formed these loose associations. But, you know, it's 10 people and every journalist photographer belongs to two or three groups of 10 people who have like come together on affinity or personality or whatever. And we kind of go through the networks of like, who's going up there. And this was very early in the pandemic. This was late May. And so nobody could go. And I could, because I could socially distance. I could just go camping for a couple of weeks and it wouldn't hurt my family and it wouldn't hurt, you know, my life. And I didn't have anybody else that, you know, needed me. So George Floyd was shot on the Monday. Oh, no, he wasn't shot. He was... Uh... Yes, you're right. I was just checking. You weren't thinking of a different uh, circumstance. It was George Floyd you were talking about, right? Yeah, George Floyd was killed on the Monday. And on the Tuesday, I was on the phone talking to everybody. Who's going to go cover this? Is this going to catch? Is this going to be a thing? Wednesday midday, I said, fuck it, and started packing. Drove up. Thursday, I was there. And I was running in and out of structure fires and taking just an insane amount of photographs. Friday, I went out and immediately was, well, not immediately. I'd been out for, I think, six hours. And then I started taking photos of police and they didn't like it. And then they shot me in the face. So I only made it like a day and a half. Blimey. I saw the picture online. I don't think it got caught on video, did it? But the picture online you took of the police, and I think it was just before it happened. How far away were you from the police and how near to other people were you? Do you think this was actually aimed directly at you? There was no one else around or you were in a group of people? Yeah, so this isn't the first time I've covered civil unrest and particularly urban unrest, which is to say uh, protests in cities, right? Like I started this career in Ferguson in 2014. 
protesters were a block behind me. Oh, wow. Police were directly in front of me. And I was in, there's not an official term, right? But like when you're in a position, and this happens in America, of police need protesters to move. So they move them down a block. Now, there's always kind of this like no man's land in between them. Because when it's that sort of people are showing up to protest and police are showing up to stop them, and nobody actually wants to get in a fight, everybody keeps a respectful distance. And it's that space that photographers dart in and out of. That's our job, is to go and take pictures. And so I was in the middle of that space. I definitely can say I could not have been mistaken for a protester because I, A, was not in the protest group. B, I was carrying a pro rig and you do music for a living. You know what I mean? Like the difference between somebody who does karaoke and what you do. (laughs) I'm not saying the person that does karaoke isn't a fucking virtuoso. But, like, you can definitely tell the goddamn difference, right? You had some uh, good equipment on you, that's what you're saying. Yeah, no, like, that's the difference between me and people who are live streaming or whatever. Which is not to say that they weren't good or doing their job or doing the right job. Just, you know, (laughs) there's a step up. And, you know, I've got credentials on, which didn't mean any goddamn thing, if I'm honest. Like none of these people have been trained to recognize press credentials, but I'm carrying a full body camera with a full flash and I'm taking photos and I'm not in their way. And I have photos of them casually drawing down and casually loading their weapons and casually pointing them at me. While just feet away, their friends are laughing over something on a phone in no world did any law enforcement official think I was a threat? And I've been covering this shit for nearly a decade now. Like, I know how to not be a threat. I'm married to a fucking United States Marine. Like, I understand all these cops just want to go home to their wives or husbands or whatever. That's fine. And I'm not going to be the one to ignore an order. I am going to do my job. They didn't want me to do my job, so they shot me directly in the face. And I have pictures of them doing it. Which is fucking wild. That's mad, isn't it? I thought shit was wild before I got shot. Like, Fiji happened before I got shot. (laughs) I'm kind of afraid to see what happens five years from now. Oh, God. Yeah, no, if we keep escalating, like, if life keeps escalating at this level. Did you have a lawsuit against the police? or? Oh, God, yes, I'm suing them. Oh, that's still ongoing? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you can't really speak too much about that. Do you know the officer that did it, or is that just something that gets lost because they all went, like, riot gear and stuff? I will carefully watch my words here. I will say that I published the last photos that I took before I was blinded on my Patreon. And it's patreon.com slash bootstrap. And it's literally called the last photos I took with two eyes. People can draw their own conclusions. 
I would also say I didn't even realize that I kept hitting the shutter button. I was fucking astounded these pictures were there. They're not clear and they're not great, but apparently I kept hitting the button right up until I got shot. You probably didn't see it coming. No, I, I legitimately did not see it coming, and now I can see even less things coming. Uh, did your camera get damaged at all as well? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I actually uh, wound up with a Lucite box. I bled so heavily, I can't change the settings. I just bled all over the motherfucker. It didn't actually get hit by the bullet. You got hit and bled on it, and it fucked it up. Yeah, which is such a weird... You know what I mean? Like... That's a strange way to break a camera, yeah. Yeah, no, I had to have been, and I've never been good with spatial recognition, right? Like, so I hate to say how far I was. Like, I like to refer people to the pictures because that tells them. I wasn't that far away, but I was far enough that you might miss by an inch. So if they're aiming for my camera and they hit my face, fine. But yeah, so I actually hadn't realized that I bled on the camera and I, I took it out. And there was a protest and I thought to myself, well, let's go see if I can still do my job and get there. And I'm taking these photos and this is also on my Patreon. And I didn't realize the reason all the photos were cloudy was not because I was blind, but because my actual blood was all over the viewfinder. That's mad. Yeah. Well, that's why I just bought a Lucite case for it and I'm getting a new camera. (laughs) Because... I could have this one sent in for cleaning, but I feel like if you have ever been in a situation where the scroll wheel is like glued shut with your own blood, just get a new camera. Well, also, it's fucking hilarious to get in a loose set case on my leg. I'm now a supervillain. So, uh, do you know how long the court case is going to go on for? Oh, it could be months, could be years. It's the United States legal system. Nobody knows. Shit. Well, good luck with that. Uh, hope it goes well. Now, you sound like you're signing off, but I have questions for you. Hey, thanks for listening and thank you to Linda for joining me. Catch her on Twitter at Killer Martinis and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not give us a like, share, review, subscribe, and tell your friends that the Ross Project is the Dope Show in town. And that's it. Nice one. Bye. D-R-E-V-E-N-A.